Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This probably won't surprise you if you were here last week, but I'm happy to be past verse 16 and moving on to verses 17 and following. And uh, this is a great passage and a great text, and there's a lot of really important stuff here. And I hope that you'll lock in and pay attention. I know we have some here this morning who are mourning. There are some who are not here who are mourning. There are others who are traveling. Some are sick or recovering from surgery. Uh, but those of us who are here, we must believe that God is brought here for a purpose. And so let's do well in our reading of His Word. Let's start by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. We will read through the end of the chapter. But don't be alarmed as we... Go through the service this morning. I will not be preaching through the entire chapter. So in 20 minutes when you feel like we have not gone very far, no one panic. Uh, we, have, we have plenty of time ahead. Here we are now in verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner he also took the cup after the supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. So not exactly uh, an uplifting tone to Paul's message there. Um, this passage has to do with the Lord's Supper. And as I said, we will not attempt to cover all the passage today because I think that would be a mistake. Instead, we will introduce the idea of the Lord's Supper and cover the first part, mainly 17 through 22. Now, by way of introducing you to the Lord's Supper, let's acknowledge that in Matthew's Gospel, Mark's Gospel, and Luke's Gospel, we have the Lord's Supper described to us. And it calls back to a different kind of supper that was instituted long before it. And I know that we have many people here who are relatively new in their relationship with Jesus, who've not heard these things before, and perhaps some people who have heard these things before, but didn't really understand them or put them together. And for the rest of us, this should serve as a good reminder about the seriousness of what we do when, monthly, we observe the Lord's Supper together. So, the Lord's Supper is a callback to Passover. And in fact, when the Lord himself institutes the supper. When the Lord passes out the bread and the wine to his disciples, he is doing it during a celebration of the Passover feast. 
And not just during the whole celebration. He is doing it during the Passover meal. He is doing it after the lambs who would be selected were brought in and slaughtered. He's doing it after all of the preparation that had gone into the week. You probably have made this connection at some point, but you must remember that the week of Jesus' crucifixion is also the week of his triumphal entry. He is going into Jerusalem triumphantly. It's that very week where he will be crucified. Why is he going into Jerusalem triumphantly? To celebrate the Passover, as it was commanded for every law-abiding, faithful Jewish person to do. So these things are connected. Now when we talk about the Passover, that in and of itself can evoke a lot of questions and uncertainty. But the Passover was established in the book of Exodus. And you might remember that God had spoken to an ancient Moses saying, you're not going to spend the rest of your life shepherding out here on the backside of a mountain. But you instead are going to go back to Egypt and you, you shepherd of the last 40 years, are going to go stand before the Pharaoh of Egypt, the supreme power in the ancient world at the time. And you are going to command Pharaoh in my name to let my people go that they might venture out into the wilderness and worship me. And an 80-year-old Moses responded to that how an 80-year-old Reggie might have responded to that. Not enthusiastically. <laughs> not, not excited. This, uh, Moses was not just raring to go, you know. He, uh, age does that and has that effect on us. It kind of sobers us out a little bit, doesn't it? It does. I was singing that song in the choir today. I'm thinking to myself as I'm failing with certain notes, 25-year-old Reggie would have had no problem here. And, you know, nearly 40-year-old Reggie struggles with some of those tenor lines. And I'm thinking maybe I should go sing with Steve down there in the bass section, you know, so low that nobody can hear me miss these notes. We are not the same people as we age. And Moses doesn't want to do this, but God tells him he will be with him when he goes and he speaks to Pharaoh. And he gives him, honestly, I would say, you know, hilarity ensues. He tells him, you know, stick your hand inside your shirt and Moses does it and pull it out. And when Moses pulls his hand out, he's shocked because his hand has leprosy on it. And that, that's, that would be alarming. And then God puts it back. But to the next one, and I love this, this is just not, not super relevant for this morning, but I like it so much that I, I say it from time to time. Remember the whole staff thing where Moses throws his staff down, turns into a snake? You know, he throws a staff down and says, and the snake, or the staff turned into a serpent. And you know what the next words say? Moses fled. <laughs> he ran away, you know. And of course, we look at that and say, well, come on. It's just a staff that God turned into. Certainly, God's not going to kill you with the snake. But what would you do if you threw your staff down and it turned into a snake right in front of you? He ran, you know. I don't know how far he ran. And then the, the alarming part is God tells him to reach down and pick it up, you know, while it's a snake, you know. Uh, and it doesn't tell us how long it took Moses to reach down and pick it up, but I'm guessing it probably took a little while. It would, would have taken me a good while to have the courage to reach down and pick it up. So God says, I'll be with you, and he goes to Egypt, and he is with him. He is with him. And God does supernatural things that are entirely supernatural, that are shocking, that would shock us today, that God only did in this extent at one time in the history of the world, he does these supernatural things. And we call these the ten plagues of Egypt. But on the tenth plague, the climactic plague, God fulfills the promise that he told Pharaoh in the beginning, that Israel, the people of God, were as his firstborn son. And that if Pharaoh was intent to slave and hold in captivity, in captivity God's firstborn son, then God would take his firstborn son, in fact, all the firstborn of Egypt. And Pharaoh doesn't listen. Pharaoh doesn't hear. He doesn't respond. In this final plague of a death angel that would visit the land of Egypt on one night, God says that he will make a distinction between his people and the people of the land. And he says, this is how the distinction will be made. You will take a lamb and you will kill it. And you will eat all of it and you will sprinkle its blood. You'll paint its blood on the post of the door and on the lintel. And when my angel sees the blood 
on the post and on the lintel, he will pass over that house. Passover. And so the Jews did it in Egypt. Israel killed the lamb and they consumed the lamb, leaving nothing of it. This spotless lamb, the lamb that had been selected, provided from the shepherds of the land of Goshen there. And then they took the blood and they put it like they were supposed to. And then they waited inside and by faith trusted that the blood of that lamb would protect them from death. And God was faithful to his word as of course he would be. And when he saw the blood of that lamb covering the door of the people, the angel of death did not kill them. But on every house where there was no blood of that lamb painted upon the beams of the door, the angel of death took the life of the firstborn all throughout Egypt. And thus was the Passover. They get a little ways out into the wilderness and God then establishes the Passover feast as an ongoing perpetual celebration of Israel. And it was a celebration. There was a week of celebration, a week of glorifying God leading up to it. But at the end of this climactic week, they would mimic the same sacrifice required of Israel when they were in Egypt. That they would have this lamb who would spend the week in and among them. That would be selected at the beginning of the week. This spotless lamb. This lamb without blemish. This lamb would then be like a household pet. It would come and it would live indoors with them. In their dwelling for that week. And you can imagine the children playing with the lamb. And you can imagine the concern of a father watching the children play with this lamb. This was very symbolic. And then at the end of the week that lamb would be slaughtered. That lamb would be consumed and it would be that meal, that Passover meal, a remembrance of how God had passed over the sin of Israel as they looked by faith at the covering of the blood of the lamb on the door. It was during this annual celebration that Jesus and his disciples went and gathered in the upper room to observe this feast, this Passover supper. And they were at some point in the supper when Jesus interrupts to tell them that one of them would betray him. And they were very confused and they didn't know who it would be. And there was confusion about what form the betrayal would take. And then Jesus very quietly says that one of you, yes, even one of you who has dipped bread in this cup with me will betray me. So now it is hit home. And the disciples are still uncertain who he is talking about. It's not as clear cut as some of the Easter renditions make it out to be. Where he says it dramatically as Judas has it right. in. That's not what happened. Because the disciples themselves are asking, is it I? Is it me? We've all dipped into the cup with Jesus tonight. But Judas knows what it means. And it says he leaves. And the disciples, and the, the Bible tells us the disciples thought he was just going to make further arrangements for them. But he knows what he goes to do. Jesus knows what he goes to do. When he leaves then, after Judas' departure, he institutes what we observe as the Lord's Supper. He calls it a new covenant. Now a covenant is a promise. It's a contract between two parties. There was an old covenant. A way by the sacrificial system, the offering of animals and their blood, by which God would overlook the sin of his people. But this would be a new covenant. This would be a covenant sealed with Jesus' blood. This would be a covenant that would call back to the Passover itself. And we're going to get into this more next week, but it is this dinner, this covenant, this somber Celebration? I guess. But this observance that the Corinthian church has made a mess of. Now, when we think of the Corinthian church and what was going on, we have to understand the letter to the Corinthians was written even before the Gospels were written and circulated themselves. I told you at the beginning, but... Most people believe that this is the first, you know, letter, the first book of the New Testament written chronologically. Um, most scholars believe that. So this practice of them trying to observe the Lord's Supper uh, 
as Paul had told them to and making a mess of it is not something that gets carried on after this. And, and we can just pause there and we'll call back to it at the end of the sermon today. But we can recognize the effectiveness of what Paul writes here in Corinth. But they had made a real mess of the situation. And let's go through the verses. Um, and I'll just start in verse 17 and I'll call this part one, okay? They were, by way of this mess, achieving the opposite of what they were supposed to achieve. Okay, the opposite. Um, verse 17 says, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. <laughs> when we have worship services, when we have Christian services, we are coming together for the better. Not for the worse. We are not, if we are coming together and assembling ourselves together in worship and we say we are leaving worse off than when we came, that's a big problem. Something isn't right. Maybe a person isn't right. Maybe a message wasn't right. Maybe the spirit of the people weren't right. In this case, the practice and observance of something they were doing wasn't right. And they were coming together for something that should have been profitable, should have been good for them, and instead it was worse for them that they were observing this in the first place. There was one Bible commentator that really makes a, a point of this, is uh, Leon Morris, who I appreciate. I actually chuckled several times just reading through his commentary of this, because we all just instinctively know there is no religious experience that people uh, attend or go to that's supposed to make them worse off than when they came. They're supposed to be better off than when they came. Than when they came. And that wasn't happening here. Now this, verse 17, introduces for us a major theme then for chapters 12, 13, and 14. In the next three chapters, Paul is going to try to make the case that the purpose of Christians assembling themselves together is for the building up of the body of Christ. And he's going to deal with problems with that, but also solutions for that in the next three chapters. And here, he introduces the whole concept by way of telling them, when you are coming together, and you are observing the Lord's Supper, you're doing the opposite of what you're supposed to do because when the church comes together, it's supposed to be building the body of Christ, not hurting it, not messing it up. Now, for me, when we were in the book of Ephesians, it doesn't feel that long ago because I spent a lot of time preparing for all those messages. But in reality, it's been about eight years since we were in this passage. But I'm going to ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Because I believe, and I call to this chapter all the time in Ephesians. I believe Ephesians chapter 4 is fundamental to focusing on what it is and how exactly we're supposed to be operating as a church. Okay? So this morning... And don't get alarmed, we're not making much progress in 1 Corinthians 11. But this morning, I want to just review in a reading and making comment fashion, Ephesians chapter 4. This is super important. If you get this wrong, you will imagine the church to be something that it's not. Or you will expect the church to do something it's not supposed to do. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes this. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, this church in Ephesus, to walk worthy of the calling which you are called. We all want to do that instinctively, don't we? None of us want to let the Lord down. None of us want to live in an unworthy way. We're not here because we want to let the Lord down. Then he describes this worthy walk, like this, verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. Think about that for a second. He is saying, the worthy walk of a Christian people is lowliness, gentleness, 
long-suffering or patience and bearing with one another in love. In other words, by Paul's description here, a church is worthy of the calling to which they're called when they are lowly individually in the eyes of each other. They are not exalting themselves or their opinions or their ideas or their choices. Instead, they are at every opportunity lowering themselves in humble service to the people around them. They are not interested in standing up and causing the people to conform with their own motives. Instead, they are sacrificing what might be self-serving to their own plan in order to embrace lowliness which is a positional place of servanthood to others. This is nothing different than what Jesus tells us. That those who would be his disciples must serve. That they should follow his example of stripping down and tucking in the towel into your own tunic and walking around with the basin and washing the feet of the, of the disciples. He tells his own disciples in, in a... In a a mistaken understanding of what it would be in God's kingdom. Remember, his disciples are asking, what do I have to do to be the greatest in the kingdom? He tells his, his own disciples, you who would be great must be a slave, must be a servant to the others. So Paul tells us, unsurprisingly and yet poignantly, that a Christian people who are walking worthy of their calling are walking with all lowliness. And then gentleness is the next phrase. Not abrasive. Not offensive. Not abusive. Not frustrated. But gently living with one another. What is gentleness? Gentleness is, look, I really think this is what this person should do. I really think this is what this person needs. I really think this is what our church should do. This is what our church, I really think this is what I should do. And yet, I am approaching this from the point of a servant and I will be gentle about it so that there will be no jabs felt from this position. There will be no wounds inflicted. When you have to be worked on or manipulated by a doctor, by a therapist, would you prefer someone who is gentle or someone who's not so gentle? I would prefer someone gentle. Now, I might still need to be manipulated, and it might hurt, but I would, I would prefer the approach of the person to at least be with the compassionate concern for how what they're doing might affect me. I don't want somebody who's like, oh, that's funny, I just caused you a lot of pain. Or, oh, well, I don't care, you gotta go through it anyway. I don't want someone callous. I may have to go through the pain. I may have to go through the experience, but the person putting me through it shouldn't enjoy the process. There should be a mindset of gentleness that's worthy of God's people here. And if you will, imagine the Lord gently dealing with disciples who after three years of ministry think that the whole point of this is for them to figure out how to exalt themselves above the others. I mean... Had you been in the Lord's position, you might have stood up and been, are you guys even paying attention to what I've been talking about for the last three years? Shut up, Peter! You know, I mean, you would have been, because this was, some of their conclusions, their mindset is absurd. And yet here is Jesus, gently, servant-like, reasoning with them, dealing with them, Patiently, which is the next word. Long-suffering with them. We might even say Jesus was bearing with them in love. Because sometimes when I read the gospel accounts, the disciples seem unbearable. I mean, Jesus, the, the, most, the most poignant thing he says to them as a big group is like, all ye of little faith. I mean, how many times would you have just thrown them all out of your presence? How many times, mom or dad, have you just had enough of the kids and say, I got to get away for a minute, you know? These men were grown men. They should have known better. They lived and traveled with him for three years. Does he ever abandon them? Does he ever drive them away? No. So walking worthy of this 
is walking in a way that does not look at oneself and one's own experience as the chief goal here, the chief objective, but looks entirely at the others. Not to wound, not to hurt, but to see growth. And that's what we see here. Look at verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What is the goal? Is the goal to get everybody moving in the direction I'm moving? Get everybody on the same page with me? Fix this and fix that? No. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then look, just circle if you didn't in Ephesians or if you've got a different Bible because I've said this two or three times. Just circle all of the ones in the next passage. Every time you see the word one, here we go. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Sevenfold unity. There is no reason for the body of Christ to be out of sorts in their understanding of what God has called us to. There is no reason, no justifiable reason for division. Wherever there is division, you can be sure of this. That's not God's will. And he may be allowing it. He may have a purpose in it. But his desire is not for division among his people. Verse 7 now, we've talked a lot about the collective in Ephesians 4 here, but look at verse 7. We talk about the individual. And that's a great question. Well, I hear all this about the collective and what we're supposed to be doing together and how we're supposed to think of each other. But what about me? Here's what about you. Verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, Jesus has gifted you with what he has gifted you with. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lowest parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And I'm going to say, if you want my explanation of what this is, go on the internet and go back to that sermon because this is not my purpose this morning. I'm skipping that this morning except to say, Jesus has given you the gifts that he's given you. Doctrinally, there's another issue here. Go back and listen to the sermon. Talk to me later. I'll be happy to have a one-on-one. -on -one, but that's not where I'm going to be today. It's enough for you to know that for each of you, how are you supposed to think about this? Jesus gave me the gifts that I have. What are you going to say? He didn't know what he was doing? You're unsatisfied with the gifts he's given you? Take it up with him. Now, here, verse 11. This is on theme for us this morning. And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. He gave some the role of leadership, the role of teaching. Why? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Now you've heard that before, right? Of course you have. If you've been in the church, you've heard that. If you haven't been in the church, let me explain. My role as a pastor, teacher's roles inside the church, is to equip the body of Christ here to go to work. My job is not to do the work for you, and I don't. My job is to equip the saints, Christians, for the work of ministry. Now, our church is supposed to be performing ministries, right? Ministry. The word ministry means service. You substitute service, you get the exact same meaning. We are performing service. That service is not primarily my job. My job as a teacher, as a pastor, and there are others, pastors and teachers, is to equip the church, equip the saints to do that work. Which is very different from how we think about this in the United States. We think of ministry as a profession. We say, oh, that person wants to be a pastor. That person wants to be a missionary. They're going into the ministry. No, 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 no. That's all wrong. My job is not ministry. Any more than your job is ministry. <laughs> My service 
is to do this and many other things related to it. Your job is to use the gifts God has given you for service. My job is to prepare you to do that. That's what we're doing in part this morning. Because we know, right, if we're connecting the dots from Romans, that our lives are transformed by the renewing of our minds and for our minds, for our thinking to be changed. We need to know truth from God's word that needs to be applied. The Spirit of God's going to do that as teachers and pastors do their job in someone's life. And thus, we see a person like Marty, to use as an example, go into the church one end as, um, you know, funny little kid, <laughs> And through the ministry of pastors and teachers in the church, not certainly just pastors, many teachers, as well as introduction to service, come out the other end as a very willing servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the church has facilitated the production of that in Marty's life. You could, in a way, think of a church as a factory that produces disciples who are trained of Jesus Christ to perform the work of the ministry. And it's a wonderful thing. They come into the church and they enter by a profession of faith. Not by good works. Nobody gets in this church by good works. We don't put you through a litmus test when you want to join the church. Hey, well, in order to come into the factory, tell us all the things that you've already done. We don't do that. We take them straight from the new line. What have you done for the Lord? I haven't really done anything for the Lord. I mean, I've done some good things, but I wasn't a Christian, so I wasn't really doing them for the Lord. Oh, let me teach you how to serve the Lord Jesus. Let's pray and let the Spirit of God work in your life to transform you. And over time, good works will be produced in your life that were absent before. And it would be great to see. And I can look around the sanctuary and see that from face to face. That's me. <laughs> That's me. In one end, out the other. So the church has people who are pastors and teachers responsible for equipping us for that work. But that's not where it stops. Verse 12 says, For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Now we might pause and ask, What is that service, that ministry, that work, supposed to accomplish? You've heard me say, You're supposed to be doing work. To what end? Wouldn't you like to know to what end when you've been given a job? Well, here it is. For the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, I hate the word edifying here because that's not a common English vernacular word that we use all the time. How about we just use a more common one for the building up or for the building. Building makes sense to us. If I'm going to build a company, then I have to think through all sorts of things. I have to invest in people. I have to invest in equipment. I have to invest in inventory. I have to invest in all sorts of stuff, right? Here, Jesus is building his church. And he has invested dearly in you. He has given his life to redeem you. And you, having been redeemed, have now been gifted by the Spirit of God with spiritual gifts and Jesus, having invested heavily in you, is now calling you to put that investment to a good return in serving Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to what end? To the building up of the body of Christ. What is the body of Christ? The church. The church. No one could argue that the body of Christ is anything else. It is one thing and one thing only. See, you enter into the church because of the investing work of Jesus Christ. And once inside, you are gifted by Jesus to perform a task, perhaps many tasks, but all under the same goal, to the building of the church that belongs to the very one who invested in you in the first place, who redeemed you for it in the first place. Well, when is the job complete, you ask? Verse 13, Till we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You're not going to get there. Okay? <laughs> now, hear me. You are not going to get to the place where you can say, all done. 
And I don't mean to say that you won't come to be a complete work of God. What I mean to say is if the church is building itself, then the church is always having new members and new people and new ministries to engage the lost in. And then when those people are saved, there are more people to be built and more people to grow. And when they reach a point of maturity, there are more people to come in and more people to grow. It's perpetual. Isn't every good production environment perpetual? Would anybody start a business saying, well, you know, I've got enough fuel to do this once and then we can never do it again, so let's start a company. I mean, that might be a good project. It's not a good company. It's not perpetual. It's not continuing. But the church of Jesus Christ will continue until the return of Jesus Christ. And at the return of Jesus Christ, we will no longer need to observe the Lord's Supper because it says observing the Lord's Supper until He comes. So you have work to do. And I have work to do. Verse 14. I'll just read this section. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Paul describes people who are not solid in teaching, who are not solid in doctrine, who are not solid in unity like little children. There's nothing wrong with little children. But little children are not nearly as productive as grown adults should be. Till we're no longer children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting. Some of us are carried around by the crafting and plotting of men, and we shouldn't be. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head. Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. There is no room in Paul's theology here for a member of the church with nothing to do and nothing going on and no part and no, no peace in this. That's important because 1 Corinthians 12 is going to say the exact same thing. Listen, brother, sister, if you are sitting there today listening and you just find yourself wondering as any honest person might, well, what's my role? What should I do? That is a wonderful thing to think on, okay? But if it doesn't strike you out of the blue or if you feel some conviction about it or if you feel some uncertainty about it, if you need to speak, first of all, let me encourage you, speak to a pastor because again, it is their job to equip you for the work of the ministry. And if you're just in utter confusion, go talk to a pastor, okay? That, that's, that would be appropriate here. Appropriate. But the answer, I promise you, if you're wrestling with that question, the answer is not, well, I'm supposed to sit here and listen and not do anything. That is not the answer. We're supposed to be knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Could it be any more clear than that? I read ahead, so I knew that that was coming. But I mean, could it be any more clear? When everyone is pulling the rope together, this causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Boy, if only our modern day Christian publishers had discovered this verse. What causes growth in the body of Christ? What causes the kind of growth that glorifies God? Is it a new program? Is it a new idea? Is it a new discipline? A new pamphlet maybe? Maybe a new approach to Sunday school? Perhaps we should do songs a little bit different. Now listen, all those things may in and of themselves be good questions to ask, right? None of them cause growth. Do you want to know what causes growth? It says it here. Jesus has given us all spiritual gifts. People put those spiritual gifts to purpose so that according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. I love the in love at the end because it doesn't say in money or in property or in numbers. It says growth of the body for edifying, for building itself up in love. 
there are a lot of churches that are a lot bigger than ours that make a lot of money that get this wrong. And ultimately, God is not glorified and things do not go well. We don't need to compare ourselves to other churches. We need to ask the individual question and the collective question. Am I serving the Lord with all my heart? As I serve the Lord, am I doing my share? If I'm doing my share, how can I gently serve others to build them up that they might do their share? And the body will grow. And it will grow in a way that glorifies God. Which might be different from whatever the target or the objective that you wrote on the whiteboard is. But that's okay. Because it's not your body. It's the Lord's. Now, this said, I love Ephesians 4. But turn back to 1 Corinthians 11. I know, see, if you thought I was going through the end of the chapter, you'd be shocked by now and alarmed. That's all right. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now we've read again, verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Now 18 and 19 are a second point here. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it, for there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. This is a callback to chapter 1. You remember what chapter 1? Um, I'll read it to you. It's just one verse. Chapter 1, verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you. And he says, look, I hear that there are divisions among you and I gotta, I gotta be honest, I don't just believe everything I hear, but I gotta believe that in part this is true. Because if this stuff is happening, God is not being honored and the people who are trying to do this right are standing out like a sore thumb. <laughs> the ones who are behaving honorably look way different from the mass that's allowing this to, this to happen like this. So this is not good. When we talk about verses 18 and 19, 19, there must also be factions among you. I just want to point out, factions and divisions are historically... Um, the downfall of any organization, any group, any nation, any country, any military. It is a long-fashioned rule, a, a long-fashioned principle, the principle of divide and rule. You can look it up. It was first recorded by, officially, by Philip of Macedon. I looked this up. He's the one who conquered the Greek Empire, you know, after Alexander the Great, etc. Julius Caesar implemented it. Napoleon Bonaparte implemented it. It appears in Sun Tzu's The Art of War. The idea, and here it is. This, is. this is in Machiavelli's The Art of War. A captain should endeavor with every act to divide the forces of his enemy. A captain should endeavor with every single act. Why are we doing this, guys? Soldier, you know, you can see the soldier asks his commanding officer, hey, why are we doing this? The commanding officer says, that's a good question. Goes and asks the captain, hey, why are we doing this thing? The captain's answer should always come back to one philosophy. With every act, we will divide the forces of the enemy and conquer the smaller groups. Napoleon was brilliant at this. This is how he beat big armies that were way larger than his. He could separate the armies into factions and groups, often by country contributing the troops, and then demolish, focus all of his might on smaller elements until they either ran, surrendered, or couldn't compete anymore. This is a long-standing military principle. Now the Bible, when it talks of Christians, it doesn't talk about us as great titans of heroic valor. It speaks of us as sheep. Sheep, to survive require a shepherd. We're told Jesus is our shepherd. The shepherd's job, yes, feed the sheep, make sure the sheep have water, but ultimately, keep them together. 
Do not let them wander apart. If you have, I don't know, six shepherds, I would imagine their goal is to keep all the sheep somewhere in a manageable place. And if you get in a situation where the shepherds are somehow between the sheep and they're moving in different directions, that would seem to me a scary thing for shepherding. Because they're getting away. Satan is described to us as a roaring lion, roaming about, seeking whomever he may devour. I want to read just a, a verse or two from 1 Peter chapter 5. Listen to this. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, also a partaker of the glory to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Shepherd. Keep them together. Keep them on track. Feed them. Make sure they are staying together. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, the one who keeps us all together, appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to those elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Again, humility tied to this idea of unity. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your cares upon him for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We have an enemy. There is no time for division. This is not the time for factions. Unless it is a gospel issue. Unless it is a matter of heresy. We should have very little patience for anyone who would stand up and take a chunk off in a different direction. We have no time for that. We should be working and striving together for the building up of the body of Christ. As long as we are in Christ, which means we are on the gospel, we are on point on the message, we are, we are clear on the essentials. We have no time for division on the non-essentials. And we certainly have no time for the kind of shenanigans that are happening in 1 Corinthians 11, whereby we read verses 20 through 22. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. They said, get together, we're going to absorb the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, no, no. What you are doing cannot rightly be called the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one of you takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Which I think is a good exclamation. He says in verse 22, Are you guys crazy? <laughs> what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? <laughs> if you want to have a feast, go home and have one. <laughs> Don't call it the Lord's Supper. Some of you wonder, why are we so sober around the Lord's Supper? I don't know why it has to look that way. After all, didn't Jesus sit down with his disciples? Wasn't it more like a casual meal? Listen to me. The purpose is not to get full. <laughs> the purpose is not to fill up. This is not a fellowship meal. Okay? We're going to have one of those. James denounced it on Labor Day. Tonight, after our members meeting, which if you're a member and you are interested in working together in the body of Christ, I would hope you'd be interested in coming to the members meeting. We're going to have a dessert fellowship afterwards. We're not going to pass out little tiny pieces of a brownie to everybody and a lot of small amount of water in a cup. We're having a fellowship meal. Even in that, it shouldn't be the rich people being served and the poor people getting nothing. But when we take the Lord's Supper, we do it soberly. We do it thoughtfully. We do it so the emphasis is on the remembrance, not the meal. You may not agree with everything that we do in the Lord's Supper. Maybe something could be better or worse. You may be right. But we're not doing this. We're not getting it wrong. This is getting it wrong. Verse 22. Or do you despise the church of God and shame those 
who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise. But I praise you. And perhaps I don't do it enough, but I will praise you. Since I was a little boy in this church, I have never seen anything like this happen. I'm not saying there's never been any faction or division or never been people who think more of themselves than they ought to. That exists wherever there are human beings. But when we have a fellowship meal and people come together to get full, I don't see a lot of people looking down upon poor people or visitors or new folks. In fact, I see the opposite. I praise you in this. And it's to your credit. There are plenty of things that I stand up here on Sunday morning and call into question. And I've done a little of that this morning. But I just marvel at how effective Paul is in this chronologically first New Testament letter because this got nipped in the bud fast. <laughs> it shouldn't look like this. And let's just praise God. It doesn't look like this. There's a lot more to say about the Lord's Supper. And we will in the weeks ahead. But I want to say that I am grateful to be a part of a body of Christ, even in a poor community, that does not treat poor people badly and does not treat rich people badly. But that when we come in here, I genuinely believe we love one another and we want to see one another serve the Lord. And I see that communicated all the time. I'm not going to say there's never any mistake. That would be just foolish. Wouldn't be very humble of me to say that. But by and large, the sentiment of what I see in this area is good. And we should acknowledge that. And not praise ourselves, but praise God who has spared us from a lot of awful conflict by settling this inside of us for most of us, if not all of us, a long time ago. We are all sinners. No matter how rich we are on this earth, we are all poor in spirit. Recognizing that, invites the blessing of God into our fellowship. And man, I hope members of the church come back from the members meeting tonight. And I hope we get some experience of that fellowship afterwards. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I love you. And, and I pray, Father, that we will do the evaluation of where we belong in the body of Christ and That we'll be humble and gentle about it, patient. We'll bear with one another's in love even when it gets frustrating or tiresome. <laughs> I thank you for those who bear with me and who have loved me well beyond it getting tiresome. As we express our obedience and offerings this morning and give joyfully to you. I pray, Father, that we'll see even this as some service that we can provide and a joyful one at that. Father, bring us back this evening for the assembly of your people. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.